has been said that there is only one ruling class in America. Welcome to the premiere episode of Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. Today, Tyler sits down with Skylar J. Collins of EverythingVoluntary.com to discuss Skylar's path toward voluntarism. Skylar established EverythingVoluntary.com in November 2011. The website is dedicated to promoting several philosophies consistent with the voluntary principle that all human relations should happen voluntarily, or not at all. These philosophies cover politics, economics, education, and parenting. Please subscribe to our website for free and follow us on our social media platforms. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We look forward to having you with us in the future on the Liberty Lifestyle Podcast. Giving truth the liberty of appearing. The question we want to start with tonight is... Uh, Skylar Collins, how did you become a voluntarist? And you can take as much time as you need with that. <laughs> sure. Um, that all started when I, I don't know, I don't know exactly what, why it caught my attention. I think I was just on uh, the local newspaper website and I was just looking at headlines and they ran two columns, uh, two columnists who you may be familiar with. The first one is Walter Williams. He's an economist. And the second is Thomas Sowell. He's an economist as well. And they caught my attention because they were writing about, um, they were writing about economics, but they were also writing about black issues. And they're black themselves. And so, to read an economist talk about how, like, the minimum wage hurts black teenagers the most. Stuff like that. And I'm thinking, whoa, you know, if this is written by a white economist, it might easily be dismissed as, though this is just, you know, racist or something, or he's biased or blah, blah, blah. But because they were black, it really got me thinking about the economic logic that he was using rather than, you know, looking for a way to just dismiss it. Because I, I come from a, a liberal democratic progressive background that's that's you know who my father is and he's he's been for a long time which is funny because he comes from a, a conservative republican background and he, he you know he converted to the the democratic around the time of bill clinton anyway so that caught my attention and as i i read their columns i just really liked the way especially walter williams i really liked the way he wrote and he explained economic concepts it made it extremely simple and so I, you know, I Googled and found his faculty page at George Mason. I don't think he still teaches there, but he did at the time. This was 12 years ago. And he had an archive of all of his columns. So I was just reading column after column after column and just reading all of this. And, and he has this Economics for the Citizens series that I read through. And, and you know, it was at the same time I'd, I'd read several of Thomas Sowell's columns. And I'm just thinking, wow, this is amazing. And Thomas Sowell... Uh, published a book called Basic Economics. And I'm like, this is perfect. I'll start here. You know, why not? Mm. And so I uh, bought that book and read through it. And he does um, a really good job explaining these concepts and really con comparing and contrasting economic systems of capitalism versus socialism and government control and 
uh, price controls and interventions versus not and looks at the data on that. And, um, and his background is um, Chicago School, Milton Friedman style okay. uh, of economics. Uh, Walter Williams is a little more Austrian school. Um, Friedrich Hayek background is my understanding. Okay. Anyway, so that has really got me excited and interested in economics. And also, uh, you know, once you understand the economic arguments for liberty, um, you know, you start seeing every every little government intervention in the economy is just the evil, most evil thing in the world. <laughs> you know, just because it creates so much chaos and um, bad outcomes, you know, or worse outcomes than if you'd have just left people alone to buy and sell, you know, whatever they wanted for whatever they want to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was economics. And from there, I... You know, discovered deeper thinkers in economics. I discovered the Austrian school, discovered Rothbard and Mises, um, read a lot of their stuff, Hoppe, uh, Walter Block, eventually Tom Woods, Robert Murphy, uh, Lou Rockwell, all the modern guys. Just absorbed as much as I can. And with, with those guys, you don't just get economics. You get a lot of the libertarian stuff mm. with it. And so, um, you know, started pulling all that in. And so I went from... Okay. I went from being not a real uh, heavy or, um, you know, true-believing liberal Democrat. I went from that to, you know, jumped over to free market conservatism and then free market constitutionalists and then libertarian and then finally libertarian anarchists. And then after that, you know, discovering the... the uh, the label voluntarist, you know, because it's kind of awkward, um, you know, and, and then I chose to adopt that label. So that's that's how I became a voluntarist. It started with economics. Wow. Um, for other people, it's, you know, they might find it philosophically or ethically, mm-hmm. but for me, those arguments came after I already saw government as, you know, evil in the sense that it, it harms the economy and it harms... Uh, prosperity for people. So, so that's uh, that's how. Yeah, I quite the background in economics like why did the economics part of it catch your interest because most people know that's not where they start because um you know most people just go along with what the public schools taught them and even the colleges kind of pump out and they don't uh, teach most of the uh, people that you just mentioned in their rhetoric doesn't kind of float around there unless you're uh, on the outskirts of that and maybe like yourself willing to kind of look into it so, you know, I, I know people that work within the financial industry who don't really want to look into how the economics aspect of everything works. So there's, you know, what, what sparked that 
or what was the background that you had that kind of made you start to question it rather than just take it and accept it as it is like everyone else does? Good question. I, you know, I think most of the weight of, of, you know, kind of what pushed me in the direction really has to go on the, the writing style of, of those two economists, Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell. Just the way they wrote just really made it sound very exciting and interesting. You know, it wasn't a dismal science. It wasn't boring. You know, and I, you know, prior to that growing up, you know, as a, as a, as a kid, you know, you never even hear the phrase economics. You have no idea. It doesn't mean anything. As you get older, you know, especially in high school, you hear economics and, you know, it just, it just sounds like one of those incredibly boring, um, adult things that, you know, I don't need to concern myself with. But these guys made it so understandable and exciting that I really, you know, that was really the hook. That's, that's it. That's so, amazing. So really just the fact that you were reading, you're a person who's into reading, which is a good thing, you know, it's and also rare these days. Um, and th- the fact that these gentlemen took the time to seed those ideas into their writings kind of worked on you to spark something to get you thinking about it differently. And so, again, kind of going back to what we were talking about before we started really recording here was, you know, that's kind of what we were here to do, and that's maybe just seeding our thoughts and in your journey uh, in this interview and other things that, that you've been working on, obviously, over the years and that I have been working on and plan to work on, and kind of just laying those tracks down, not to force anyone to think the way we do, but just showing them that the logic is sound, and if they're interested, they can definitely go further. So... You know, you kind of developed into it probably before labeling yourself a voluntarist. We're already understanding that it's, uh, you know, the non-aggression principle and these concepts that come out of the more classical libertarian thinking. And I, I, I consider voluntarists to just be like a sect of libertarianism. If you have to label it, then we, we can be a little bit more specific. But why did you decide to name your website everythingvoluntary.com, and how did you kind of get that idea out? And how did uh, what's the history behind that? Uh, so um, it was okay. So I first got the domain and named the website in November of 2011. It was just prior to that. I was so throughout that entire summer of 2011, I was actually working a second job at um, home improvement store and I had a, you know I was a cashier in the evenings you know it was a second job so it was an evening job and I had a lot of time to just you know think um, and it was also at that time that I or just prior to that time maybe earlier in 2011 I think that um, a friend of mine introduced me to uh, the book Unconditional Parenting by Alfie Cohn. That book is all about the uh, benefits of using love and reason instead of punishments and rewards when raising your kids. So it, it was kind of the economic version of parenting for me. You know, so economics is what pushed me to liberty. This book, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't moralizing or anything like that. It was just practical and got me looking at peaceful parenting and, and not 
using punishments and punitive measures, uh, you know, spanking timeouts, taking away privileges, that sort of thing with your children. Um, you know, not withholding your love, um, you know, making it unconditional and that sort of stuff. So very good book, highly recommended. Um, so that caused me to, and my wife to just do a 180 on the way we were raising our kids, you know, up until that point. Um, you know, let's see, 2011, my son was 2005, so he would have been five years old, not quite six. He turned six later that year, just before I started the website. Um, you know, and, and, you know, for at least a year, you know, we had, we had spanked him, you know, for things like, you know, wetting, wetting the bed or, you know, being a pain in the butt for some reason or whatever it was, we'd yell and, or mostly me, my wife is a much softer person and I kind of, you know, encouraged her in that direction and kind of, um, brought out the animal, I guess, as it were. Anyway, so, so we stopped doing that, did a 180, um, and then it was it was also over that summer that we started looking at um, I started looking at um, what we could do because my my son was approaching school age and we're thinking what are we going to do for school school is all about rewards and punishments and we don't want to do that we're not doing that at home anymore so we started looking at homeschooling options um, I first started looking at like uh, online schooling like the K twelve there's a program called K twelve that is online from kindergarten through 12. It's just all online. Kind of cool, but, you know, it's still kind of based on that same schooling model, you know, that, that right. you know, uses, you know, grading or, you know, punitive that, measures. That's what you start thinking about when you start thinking homeschooling. That's what you start picturing in your head, right, is the School at home. Down and yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I slowly as I researched it, it started to come together where I needed to be consistent with, you know, my uh, voluntarist beliefs and what am I doing with my, how am I raising my kids? Um, and that started coming together as far as, you know, raising them, you know, what kind of parents we were. And then, it, you know, that started pushing into that area of education and what are we going to do here? Um, so I went from the online schooling and then I discovered a thing called Thomas Jefferson Education, which is kind of the halfway between homeschooling and unschooling. It's all about structuring time, but not structuring content. So in other words, well, there's also an emphasis on using the classics, you know, so when your kids, um, you know, in other words, you, you tell them what they can do as far as this hour of the day, you've got to study history. I'm not going to tell you what to study in history, but it's got to be history. So, you know, there's, it's less controlling than typical school and typical homeschool. Um, but then it was soon after that I discovered unschooling, which is, you know, completely without any sort of control or structure in that sense. Um, structure is more internal to the kids and, you know, what it is they want to do. Um, so it was after that point everything was kind of complete in my mind as far as what I was doing. Um, you know, I'm a voluntarist politically and economically. Um, and then as far as being a parent, you know, it's, you know, things are really voluntary there in that sense. And then now with education. And so it felt like everything, the whole, um, every sphere of my life was now voluntarist based. 
And that's where I came up with everything voluntary. <laughs> you know, so politics, markets, parenting, education, mm. and even like self improvement. You know, I've, I've, you know, I put a lot of that on the site too. And so it's that's where everything voluntary wow, originated. So, so you had found like friendship. The trivium was coming, becoming comfortable with a pattern of thinking in which you could dispel confusion. And then the quadrivium was pushing it farther into specialized areas. One of the huge mistakes that schooling makes, even homeschooling, is to organize is to organize the agenda and the goals in terms of subject learnings, English, math, social studies, science, because those categories, while better than chaos, are so crude, they tend to mask what you're actually after. Take the universal study of the English language. What you're after is a mastery of the written language, the spoken language, and your own writing. So you've got these three divisions, and now if you're after those things, your measurement's not through memory, it's through performance, which is so much more accurate as we spoke about a little earlier in this session, the standardized tests aren't predictive, and every first-class university knows that. You don't select people because they scored here on the SATs or whatever other tests are administered because they end up disappointing you, and you waste people who... Who actually in real life we don't use standardized tests to make decisions, whereas you actually do use the trivium to observe, to process that information, and to make informed decisions. Right, and and while there are personal variants, so I think the fundamental thing is every philosopher in human history has said is know yourself. This is. The fundament. Now you can take principles like trivium and quadrivium and you can do a personal adaptation of the, you know how they will work for you. But the course I actually followed at the beginning was to say, I know this is not good for the kids I've been hired to teach. And where will I find an unerring structure? I should obviously that you basically had come to determine you felt were were things that were true or were things that were worth trying to live your life according to these things that you had come to find through your research. And, and is that because you found? you know, certain principles that you're then able to take definitive action, like start a website and spend five years on and dedicate a lot of time to, because that seems like it's something worth it to, to you to spend that much time on, obviously. So, I mean, 
I know I didn't really ask a direct question there, but can you kind of expand there a little bit? Yeah, I think the impetus for me was just seeing the inconsistencies in my own life. You know, as I became a voluntarist in the in the realms of politics and economics, um, and and being dedicated to not using aggression and not forcing people and coercing people to do things against their will. Um, but then at the same time, what was inconsistent was that I was I was behaving that way at home with my own children, people who are the most vulnerable and who I care about the most. I was completely violating my own principles, you know, and so there was that that conflict there, you know, that inconsistency. Um, you know, so when I, you know, when a friend of mine first pointed me towards this Alfie Cohn book, it just was like, it was so many lights went on and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the way that I can, I can get rid of that inner conflict. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I ate it all up and found a lot of other really great parenting resources and read those. And, and so, um, yeah, just, uh, cause it falls right in line because, because once you understand voluntarism and some of the principles, principles behind that, then yeah, if you, if you're not doing that at home, but you understand the principles, then you, you, yeah, there's an immediate conflict that would arise. And I think, I think that's kind of what everyone's work to do is, is once you find certain things that you can decide that, that, that are good things to at least structure society based on. I mean, no one's asking you to have a belief in it or to, you know, go all out and start trying to convert others to the way you think. But once you kind of have that um, as a guideline, then, yeah, you, you you start to definitely get see the conflicts that your own actions don't align with what you know now as, as real knowledge that it's something that really seems to be like a, a good way to structure society or your own life based on these principles. But then, you know, how many of us are noticing the discrepancy the discrepancies there that don't line up you know mm-hmm. and I think we all have work to do there even someone like yourself there's probably still things that we're doing that we need to change or modify to stop doing to fall in line more with the voluntary philosophy but you know I think everything voluntary.com is a great resource and, and the stuff that you're talking about now and able to talk about on the site and write about is something that I think even even someone trying to put out work like you do would keep personal rather than express what you just said and admit what you've been through and changed in yourself. That's a big step. And and personally, me being um, more new to fatherhood, I have been listening to you for a while now before I was a father, and your information actually directly affected me and my thinking and, and my approach to parenting and, and will will help so that, that I don't have to make that mistake just by mm-hmm. picking up what you laid down, you know, again, showing an example of how powerful that is just to, you know, turn back around and, and relay the information like you just did here uh, to others who might be listening so that, you know, they can have that click beforehand or while they're doing something now that they can easily change just because the knowledge makes sense, and I think that's really cool that you're able to do that. Not not everyone is able to do that so easily, right? So, um, the website, you have, like, all kinds of publications on there and tons of information, um, lots of other contributors. 
I suggest everyone go there. But one thing that I kind of wanted to touch on here is the Toward a Free Society booklet that you put out in 2015. And um, you authored this completely by yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you should be quite proud of that. It's a really good piece. And we're going to have that in the show notes, so check that out. But it's a short guide on building a culture of liberty by Skylar J. Collins, published 2015. And what prompted you to write Toward a Free Society and, you know, to take the time to actually put that uh, down? Well, it, um, so it's, it is a booklet. Um, it's six chapters. Um, you know, I think it's like 40-something pages with, you know, the size of the font and the size of the booklet that it is. It's, and it's, I think it's, it was a $6, I think, on Amazon, paperback. Um, and it, it was actually written, um, as part of my, um, weekly column that I, I used to write every week. And at some point I just decided to write a series on building a culture of liberty. So the, the, the title of the column series was building a culture of liberty. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, and it's, and it's, it's because I just, I don't know, at the time I was just thinking about how, if, um, you know, there are, there are people out there that, um, you know, they value liberty and they, they think that the only way to get it, or at least maybe the most effective way to get it is through some sort of violent revolution, right? Let's just, you know, pick up arms and topple the state. Um, you know, that, that just typically doesn't work, okay? Um, you know, the times in history where it, it has worked, and I put worked in air quotes because I think it's been temporary. Um, and, and even then, I think a lot of people's, um, a lot of people's so-called rights were violated in the process, and we can maybe talk about that, but um, is when you had a widespread culture of liberty, okay? So I just, um, so I don't think that works. It's definitely not going to work today because we don't have that. So I just started thinking more about if we want people to believe in liberty, and, you know, they could go my route where, you know, they weren't raised in liberty. They were raised in prison, <laughs> in school. Um, you know, and you know, and I was spanked and you know yelled at and that sort of stuff. And you know, thankfully, I discovered you know Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, and everything that sprung from that, which we already covered. Um, and then after, you know, then I found liberty. But even then, you know, I made serious mistakes once I had kids. You know, I didn't didn't know I was going to make those mistakes. If I knew I would, then I probably would have spent some years doing therapy or something so that I wouldn't have made those mistakes once I started having kids. But anyway, so I just started thinking about um, if we're ever going to create a free society, the only way that will happen is if you build a culture of liberty. So then the question became, how do you build a culture of liberty? Um, so where does, where does culture begin? Culture begins in the home. 
right? You know, a kid is born, he doesn't have any culture, he doesn't have any society or socialization. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know the rules of a society. He doesn't know the norms, the customs, the conventions. He doesn't know how to behave. All he knows is, I'm hungry, feed me. You know, that's it. And then as he gets older, he's, he, you know, he, he sees doing amazing things. You know, humans are very curious. They want to explore the world and so on and so forth. So you can take that child and you can regiment their life and you can teach them that other people have the right to control them. Um, and then as that person grows up, you got to ask yourself, what kind of adult is he going to be? He's going to be somebody who obeys other people on one hand, and on the other, he's going to be somebody who wants to order people, right? Because growing up, he was ordered around. Now it's his turn. You know, and he's got, because of that regimentation, and because it requires violence to maintain it, for for a lot of kids, yeah, or <laughs> that drugs nowadays. Yeah, well, that creates which is violence. Yeah, that creates um, trauma, and then the deeper that gets, once they're old enough and they get some power over other people, that trauma needs to be um, pushed out in some way, and it's gonna it's gonna happen violently. Okay, and they're gonna become you know people who are using violence, and you know. They direct it at their children. They, you know, may direct it at other people. None of that bodes well for building a culture of liberty, which is the prerequisite for a free society. So rather, you know, rather than that, the other way to go is to, you know, love your kid unconditionally, um, help him to explore the world safely, rather than restricting what he does and saying you can't do this if if it's something that he wants to do but it's dangerous. Help him learn how to navigate that danger, rather than just simply taking it from him. Um, you know, basically allowing him to be the driver and the pilot of his own life. You know, that way, that way, he experiences liberty very early, and with that, he learns responsibility over his life because he knows that the choices he makes, he's got to bear the consequences of those. Um, so, you know, and then as he gets older, um, I think he'll have more compassion for other people. He won't have the same need to, um, cause other people pain because he hasn't suffered that trauma. Um, so I think all of that speaks very well to achieving a free society. And that's, that's why I decided to write the column series. And I started with, you know, chapter one was the introduction, chapter two was parenting, chapter three was schooling, so this is where I'm kind of looking looking at why schooling is such a bad idea as it, as it concerns uh, uh, building a culture of liberty. Um, and then, you know, the solution to that is radical unschooling, so that's chapter four. Um, and then chapter five is agorism, which is all about... Um, Really, it's just all about markets, um, you know, whether legal or illegal, um, you know, black and gray market, white markets, black, uh, gray markets and black markets. Um, and just really, the I think the focus of that chapter was the idea that um, law is just an obstacle. It's just, it just represents risk. That's it. Law is not, as far as state-made law, okay, I'm not talking about, sure. I'm not talking about like... Uh, 
customs and norms and conventions that, that really benefit everybody doesn't and don't cost anybody anything. But legislated state-made law is just an obstacle. It's just, it's just a matter of risk as far as whether we're going to ignore them or we're going to recognize them. Um, sure. So that was the focus of that, and that's where agorism comes in because it's all about uh, gray markets, black markets, and just really going outside the law to, you know, provide people with the things they need. and it, But really the focus is just that foundational idea that law is not sacrosanct, it's not holy, it's not honorable, it's it's violence, it's force, it's risk. Right. That's it. And, and, and at what point do you decide, you know, to defend yourself against that aggression or comply with it? You know, and so I totally agree with that. Um, you know, and, and also... You know, just operating outside of, of that aggression could be considered agorism. It doesn't necessarily, you know, gray market, black market, yes, but um, even just doing something unlicensed, right? That that's that's kind of almost like black market because that's that that opposes the law. But you're basically, you know, why do we have to beg permission to cut hair, for example, when? that type of activity really shouldn't be licensed by any kind of government agency to, to be able to do a basic job function like that. So so do you choose to ignore that and just go ahead and cut hair and maybe get fined, I guess, is, is the example kind of what, you, what you're giving. Do you just deal with the consequence and ignore the unjust law? And uh, is that kind of what you're saying there with law and, and how we should treat it or... Or, or just deal to com- uh, and, and, and comply with it if it's going to make your life too hard to, to try to, to not comply with it. Yeah, yeah. You just, you just a- approach it as um, there are predators out there that will attack us if they know we're doing certain things. What can I do to mitigate that risk? I could either, you know, go get the license and pay the... You know, depending on what it is, I mean, it can be very costly, um, especially if I'm somebody who really wants to invest a lot of uh, time and energy in building something. You don't want that to later on be completely destroyed by these predators, mm-hmm. you know, demanding their dues, you know. Uh, so, you know, but that's it. It's it's all about risk mitigation. And for a lot of people at the same time, and this is kind of where I'm at right now, um, I'm going to take these risks, and then if the government comes in and says, you know, you're not licensed, you know, we want to fine you, I'm going to challenge that. And my my challenge, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit later, but my focus is going to be on challenging their jurisdiction. Okay, it's going to be on challenging their claim that their laws apply to me. Right. <laughs> because, yeah. you know... Mark Stevens' approach. Right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's something that I'm experimenting with right now, and I have in the past. Um, so that's that's been um, pretty fun. Yeah. But but that's really what chapter five is all about. And then chapter six is the concluding chapter, and it's all about the concept of moral outrage and what moral outrage is. It's the feeling that people get when they perceive something as wrong and they feel outraged by it. Okay, and so. If somebody is is raised in an authoritarian culture, they're not going to feel moral outrage towards authoritarian actions. Okay, that's not going to create a free society. Whereas, in my opinion, if somebody is raised in freedom and liberty, which is where the unschooling and the peaceful parenting—that's where it begins—and then from there, you know, they're 
they're made to understand that law is just risk and that it's okay, it's not wrong, it's not immoral, it's not unethical to break the law as long as there's no victims, real victims, okay? Not this pretend victims like, oh, you know, you, <laughs> those... those um, advertisements you see before movies that say you wouldn't copy a car hell yeah I would I would copy a car if I could and so yeah I will copy your song okay there's no actual victim there anyway um, you know and they try to convolute and make arguments for how oh it's really a victim intellectual because intellectual property intellectual property yeah that's that's a big uh, that's a big thing um, yeah those commercials are just funny when they say that you wouldn't copy a car you wouldn't copy a yeah I would actually my 3D printer. if I could copy your car and that would leave your car alone for you to continue using it. Now I have a copy magically. You bet your ass I would. Well, it's within your rights to do it if if you understand your rights. Uh, yeah, and I get a car, you know. But like you were saying, if you don't understand your rights, then basically, you know, an authoritarian model can get people to do almost anything, really. Yeah. Um, but but on those lines, what what is a free society, and do we have one now? And if not, why? Um, so do we have a free society? I think that if, if we consider the, um, non-aggression principle as valid and the voluntary principle, which is what I base my voluntarism on, as valid, then I would say we have a free society, okay, but within our free society, there's a number of predators, some bigger with more power than others. Okay, there's there's your your petty crime, and then there's your public crime. Okay, so there's just these these gangs of thieves all over the place. You know, some larger than the others. Okay, that are that are trying to force everybody to obey them and to pay them. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we could say rather than we have a free society is we have a society, and within that society we have um, different institutions, some of which are predatory and some, most of which are not. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, so what they do is wrong, and, you know, so there's different ways, again, to, to mitigate that. You know, they are a risk. So are you saying basically like we exist here and we're always free in reality, but there's only the, you know, the illusion of, the loss of freedom in, in in the form of the kind of all these violations that occur and, and people complying with them, you know. But in reality, I mean, are you kind of is that what you're saying that we're just we are free and no one can take that away from you? Period. But you know, then there's all the conditional things that that we have around us. I mean, because I I don't really agree that we have a free society, but maybe I'm not understanding you in that way. Um, I, I I do like the spin, you know, of kind of like the pirates. Like the, we basically just have pirates around us and parasites and psychopaths who are basically having their way. Predators, yeah. Yeah, predators, basically, you know, uh, parasites just um, taking advantage at every turn. Um, but then, I mean, there's also just people wanting that to stay that way. I mean, I know that they're, they're, they might not be healthy mentally people um, or have a clear understanding or logic like you do with all, all this theory and um, actual principles that you feel like you want to um, structure society. I mean, some people don't think about this and they just want those predators that, you know, you're talking about to be, they want them there actually because they feel like they're getting protected and all this. 
but but I consider their presence to to make it um, so that freedom is not present when when that kind of behavior is just operating freely with not a lot of resistance to it. You know, I mean, can you clarify on that? Yeah, let me put it this way, um, and this this kind of goes towards the um, question of jurisdiction and the applicability of law and kind of the Mark Stevens thing. Um, I think as soon as we realize, each of us individually, as soon as we realize that, that nobody has legitimate authority over us, that we are the author of our lives and of our actions, um, that nobody actually has political jurisdiction over us. Nobody is our master, even if they act like it, even if they think they are. In reality, in objective, yeah, in objective reality, that is false. That's not true. And I think that as soon as a person recognizes and accepts that in their life, I think that's the moment right. they become a free person. Exactly. That's a good clarification yeah. because there's only that claim and then there's only the belief that that claim is true, but it doesn't actually make it true in reality. No, yeah, and people you know? believe in... So I like um, that because you're yeah. taking in the in consideration the objective. But, you know, it's important because the, the, the subjective is really all that matters, though, because that's what's manifesting the world around us. So the objective truth is there, and I agree, you know, but the... the the other side of that, though, is that, you know, the conditions that most people are in are in, in not a condition of uh, physical freedom and men- mental freedom, you know. Yeah. They're, in, they're not really in alignment with that vibration of the state that we are. I mean, I think with the, non- the non-aggression principle should be held next to the principle of self-ownership. And I think those two principles, you know, kind of keeping them together work to kind of big, paint the big picture in my mind, you know, keeping that in mind, you know. It kind of goes right along with it, but I, I like to put it there with it, that you do own yourself, and you are a sovereign human being, and no one can actually take that away from you, and you can't give it away. You can try, and, and you can believe that you're doing that, and other people can make claims that they're doing it as well, but, yeah, it's just simply not the case in reality, right? I mean... Yeah. So I like that. Yeah, that's great. And and I posted this article that we were just going over in my uh, Freedom Cells Networks for a Free Society article at the bottom in the notes as like a resource to go check out along with that piece. So, you know, um, I think it's really relevant to what we're doing here in the Salt Lake Freedom Hive. And anyone who's interested should definitely go check that out. Now, kind of switching gears, how did you get into, like, unschooling, I mean, you kind of went over that a little bit, but um, are you a radical unschooler? Because you mentioned that, but then you also said that you were, you know, more in alignment with, like, the Thomas Jefferson way of doing it. Um, Can you clarify that? Like, are you radical unschooler? Do you not like to label yourself that? No, I love love to label myself that. Um, I don't know. I've got kind of a fetish when it comes to these extreme radical labels. I really like them. Like, even anarchists, voluntarists, you know, I mean, a lot of people, will, they look at the baggage that a lot of these labels have, and then they try to look for alternative labels that are better. And I, I guess I did that to an extent when I adopted voluntarists over anarchists. Right. 
I'm still totally okay with anarchists. Um, um, but a, a lot of people in the unschooling movement are doing that too. You know, they think unschooling is a strange word. And so they're coming up with labels like home education or lifelong learning or this or that. I'm just like, it's okay. There's history with the term unschooling. You know, it was mm-hmm. coined by John Holt, who was an educator. Okay. He never had any children of his own, but he, he studied school children for many, many years. Um, and wrote a lot of different books on, um, you know, the, the disastrous effects of schooling and the benefits of home education, um, it, it, particularly um, non-structured home education, which is what we would call unschooling. Um, now, where the radical unschooling comes in is there are unschoolers that, as far as academics are concerned, their kids, you know, are the, the pilots, the drivers of that. But everything else in their lives, like like uh, eating times, what they eat, how much they eat, bedtimes, when you know when they go to bed, what they wear, all these other little petty areas of control, parents still you know consider themselves the authority on that, and they you know they control all that. Whereas radical unschoolers are saying we're going to let our kids experience food freedom and bed freedom and just everything. Okay. Well, yeah. So I have a question on that. So like, do you? practice the food freedom is it like if you just have like as like i mean obviously you try to keep healthy food around but if you didn't and there's candy and your kids having all of it is do you draw the line or is it it's in the house it's open game i mean how does that work yeah yeah absolutely um we will i guess you could say nag from time to time when we don't think our kids when it doesn't seem like our kids are eating enough we'll kind of be like you know we think you need to eat um, you know, and they either say okay or not. And I think sometimes it can be a little, a little more naggy than we should be. Some ha- habits are hard to break. Um, mm-hmm. But no, yeah. If, as far as the food freedom, yeah, we're we're totally. They can have whatever they want. If if which which has really been an interesting thing because because we haven't controlled. You know, they go out on Halloween and collect all their candy. They bring it back. They have a few pieces, and then it sits for six months. Right, right. You know, we're not we're not restricting it, so they don't they're not coveting it. You know, yeah. they're not. It's not a temptation for them because they know if they want a candy, they can have one, and they just they just don't. Mm-hmm. Same with ice cream. You know, we don't buy a lot of ice cream, but when we it, well, it's funny. I used to buy ice cream all the time, and and it was the same thing. You know, they just didn't care to eat it. I stopped buying ice cream, and now when I do. It's like, I want ice cream, you know, because now it's not as available as it was. And so now it's a bigger temptation. Right. So I found that very interesting. Um, but no, my, my kids, and, and it's, I don't think it's a problem. It seems maybe like a problem sometimes, but they're very skinny. And it's because they just they just don't eat a lot. Right. You know, they don't, I mean, they're on the computers a lot, doing a lot of amazing different things with friends and games and stuff like that. Um, so they don't get a lot of physical, I mean... We do take the time out. My daughter's in gymnastics. My son just finished basketball. He's going to start baseball. So there are some avenues of physical activity. But otherwise, they're not outside playing all day long. Um, and so they just don't need to eat as much. Sure. You know, so they don't. But they're they're very well, um, how, do you, how do you say it? Um, I don't know. They, they know what their bodies need. They know when they're hungry. They know when they're full. You know, this idea that if we don't feed our kids, they're going to die. 
We don't force feed our kids. They're going to die. Right. That's just not true. That would mean that the human child is the only animal on earth that must be force fed or it will die. Right. That's that's just it's just really well, so silly. The radical in schooling, I think, like I was saying, was like more kind of like <laughs> keeping the options available so that when they're hungry, they'll go for, eat what they want. And and you should absolutely, I think, just let your child kind of graze in that way because that's more natural to me. I mean, just letting them go eat and and with with our kids, that's definitely true. I mean, with um, the five year old anyway, he will eat when he wants to eat and let us know if he needs help making that food or whatever, you know. And so, but I think a lot of radical, or I think a lot of people getting into unschooling have a really big problem with thinking about these concepts. It, like, makes them really cringe, you know? Sure. But, like you said, it's actually taking away that control that takes away their desire to want it and covet it so much. I mean, even if they do go through a spurt of extreme sugar eating, they'll probably get sick of that and then move on to the next phase of salty snacks or whatever. I mean, and then they should experience those things by themselves rather than you dictating a 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock dinner every night that they must sit down and eat. This is more trauma, right? Like, now later on in life, there's this memory of force-feeding almost and and yelling and getting in an argument. Well, yeah, and then they develop a bad relationship with food. Okay, and if there's somebody who experiences trauma, eating food um, will, uh, you know, the taste, it's a pleasurable experience, right? So it, it kicks off all the little pleasure hormones in the brain. Okay, so now food becomes an escape from their shitty life because of the trauma. So then they develop a bad relationship and they tend to overeat and then they have health problems, right? Weight problems, so on and so forth. So I think... The obesity epidemic in America is as much a parenting problem, wow. okay, as it is a, a shitty food. The availability of shitty food and how cheap it is problem. <laughs> yeah, that's powerful. So I, I'm going to kind of. I had another question. I was sure. going to ask, what is peaceful parenting? But you've kind of already touched on it quite a few times, and, and you've you've expanded on it quite a bit because I think in, throughout your learning here, you've made another connection that, again, a lot of people haven't made, even in the community, and even when I was first making this connection, it it was painful, but then so eye-opening to make so many connections back to how you were raised, how those first seven years affected you, you know, and I say seven because I, I consider that to be about the time frame of where you're in kind of a download state, where you're formatting the hard drive and laying down the foundations for how not that you're permanently going to be forever because th- things are changeable but how you kind of will see the world and, and operate um, for a long time with like almost a permanent formatting um, and so a lot of the problems in the world I also see as being linked back to parenting and actually a, a, a lack of parenting. I feel that there's people are not raising their children properly, not instilling the values and principles that need to be instilled in order to have a free society. And and when a child grows up to join the military, to want to join the police force, to oppress others, to enforce the state's will, um, and all these things, I consider that to be a failure in parenting. And, yeah. Um, that's because they were not raised properly, and you still have people that were not raised properly who are using the state as almost kind of a surrogate parent, you know, 
And and so I really like that you've made all these links back so um, to, to the way that people are raised, you know, in, in those early years. And it seems like your work really just kind of weaves that in throughout because it's so important. I mean, I think the other researcher who understands this on a level and is reaching a lot of people with the message is, I'm sure you're familiar, Stefan Molyneux. And I don't agree necessarily with everything Stefan says, especially, you know, recently, if you're paying recently, attention. Yeah. <laughs> but... He seems to have gone off you know, some deep end somewhere. I don't know which deep end. you can't discount his work on peaceful parenting, right, on, right. on raising children, um, and those things. And, and I, I love that you, you're kind of in that niche, too, you know. There's not a lot of people talking about it. Uh, th- th- there's probably endless amounts of books written on the, on the subject, and, and it's well documented, I'm sure. But, I mean, as far as people making the connections back to the problem of the economy, back where you started, or the problems with just the the overarching, you know, tyranny in our lives, as, as anyone can perceive it, knows it's there, um, all linking back to probably um, parental abandonment issues, right? Because mm-hmm. it... Um, parental abandonment issues kind of create this void for the state to fill, and I think they psychologically play on that. So, so you, I mean, peaceful parenting is almost like the key in a lot of ways. Do you yeah. see it that way? Like, is it's it's one of those like almighty skeleton keys that if we can use it and wield it properly, I mean, think in in, in five to ten years. That's the 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 time it kind of takes to raise the child through those that process. Yeah, you know. and those um, I don't know how many years it is, but those first however many years is when all of the connections in the brain are being formed. And if a child is experiencing a lot of trauma during those years, then the then the the way that the brain becomes wired um, is not conducive to. Um, it's not conducive to compassion and nonviolence. I think I think it's it's conducive to high stress situations where fight or flight is easily triggered and not so easily um, left behind when when peace has been reestablished. So it creates very irritable people. It creates um, you know all of that leads to violence too. So. I don't think it's any, um, and this this is now getting into the work of um, uh, French um, uh, PhD Alice Miller. She wrote a lot on parenting, in particular, she wrote a lot on um, how Adolf Hitler was able to get so many people to do so many evil things, and not just not just Adolf Hitler. I mean, you had Stalin and Mao. And she linked it back exactly to that. She linked it back to the number of editions that were written of this one really popular book in Germany 40 and 50, 60 years before Hitler that advocated some really serious mm-hmm. parental abuse of children. And it went into like 8, 9, 10 edition printings. Um, wow, that's I mean, it was, it was a bestseller for many, many years for those years leading up to when now... Um, those people then raised their kids that way, who then turned and raised those kids that way, and those kids then right. became the soldiers right. of Nazism. So, yeah, I think there's a very, very real and serious connection between childhood trauma and 
the willingness to use violence later yeah, in life. Yeah, and if you look at the, you know, Prussia before Germany, they they created the current school system that was implemented in America, it came out of the Prussian model, and it was designed to create uh, more efficient order followers, basically, to create more efficient military soldiers that would not question the authority, uh, question the authority of the state. And, um, yeah, so that's, you know, we can get into that some other time, probably not here tonight, but, you know, that's what created, eventually created the, the outcome of that could only have been possible by, you know, brainwashing people basically from very early on into seeing things a certain way so that they could disconnect their actions from real consequences because of just being told what to do, which is what, you know, the, the current American education system was founded on. I can put that in the notes um, as well. Just more information about, you know, Horace Mann and, and the importation of the Prussian model here in America. Um, but, you know, you've mentioned your transformation from kind of not practicing peaceful parenting into peaceful parenting. And again, I think that's really good to, to document that and let people know that it's something that you can, you should apply the non-aggression principle to everyone. I mean, do you agree that it's a, a universal like that for all human beings, at least we'll just leave it there for now. You should you know, respect, give them the respect of the non-aggression principle as well. That applies to children as well as adults, right? We don't withhold that right from children, which just goes back to what you were saying earlier, how they created that conflict, you know, Yeah. Um, in your own life. Yeah, certainly, certainly not. I, I think, you know, and if we just look at the practical benefits of, you know, not using aggression with our kids, whether it's in our parenting or with uh, educational methods, then um, I think that speaks for itself. Um, but also the, uh, I guess the, uh, what you could say is the moral argument or the ethical argument. Um, and if we really dig in, I mean, you brought up self-ownership earlier, and I think I think children, I mean, even though we, we create them, um, I think they are self-owners, even though they need our help in a lot of different ways. And I think, I think as parents, we bring the child into the world and we bring them into a, a situation of dependency on us. I think that I think that creates some obligations to right. to raise that children the absolute best way. Okay, and and in my opinion, that's peacefully. Right, okay. it, it almost creates more of an obligation, right? Yeah, because they're so weak they're and they're so vulnerable, and yeah, situation yeah, they're forced to be here. Um, they're dependent on us. Um, you know that that doesn't mean we can't trade or sell that obligation. You know, I think we can. I don't think it's an obligation we have to bear. I think I don't think we can just leave our kids to die. I think we have to give notice to somebody who is willing to take over that obligation. Otherwise, you know, I think. That is an act of aggression. That's killing a child. If you create the dependency and then you let them starve, to me, that's that's murder. Um, you know, I think you've got to give that yeah. to somebody. And if if, if calling spanking a violation of the non-aggression principle makes people cringe, and I say that because I've had conversations with people recently where 
you know, they just really didn't see what I was saying and, and they didn't agree that spanking was ag aggression. And so what I would recommend is to go look into Skyler's work uh, more on this. We, we can't get into it all here tonight, but he's put the time in. And, and if you're disagreeing or cringing when you hear, you know, and you think spanking is the only way, I would definitely just recommend kind of going a little bit further down that path and checking out what Skylar's already done, you know, just throw in, in a search on everythingvoluntary.com, peaceful parenting, and that there would be a great place to start there for you. Um, so I do want to kind of switch gears again on us, uh, but it's funny how it does keep coming back to parenting, you know, mm -hmm. and that's uh, interesting. But one thing, um, and you can feel free not to answer this question, but you also, in one of your podcasts, I don't remember which one, I've listened to a lot of your stuff over the years, were um, explaining how even your views and road to voluntarism also started having you possibly question your religious views. And um, earlier, you and I were talking before recording about those, uh, the upbringing. And so if you wanted to go into that a little bit, you know, if, it's an, if you don't want to touch that, that's fine. Um, but just how it, if, if at all, affected that world, you know, because it's, it's another paradigm. We've been talking mainly politics, um, but religion is another paradigm which can be used to control and enforce a certain um, tyranny onto people. So, but not all religions, and I'm not saying that either, but so how did that, how did that go for you? Because you, you mentioned that recently. Yeah, um... Yeah, and, you know, and my background is Mormon, um, you know, you know, being born in Utah, my fam my family background is pretty heavy Mormon, um, you know, and I, uh, my father fell away from the church, apostatized, as they say, you know, you know, and I didn't really hear much about that until I was a teenager when he started, um, I guess, introducing things to us, and so, through my teenage years, you know, me and my siblings, we stopped going to church. Um, and it was, it was when I met my wife that I decided to, um, you know, get some answers to a lot of the anti-Mormon questions that I had. And I found a lot of really, really well done, um, LDS apologetic, res uh, websites and research and stuff. And that really kind of brought me back on that intellectual level. And, but, you know, and, you know, and that was all totally 100% voluntary, right? You know, I left and then I came back. Nobody forced me either way and that's all, that's all great. Um, and, you know, uh, the more I got into voluntarism, you know, then I, I started thinking more and more about the different episodes in, you know, the Bible of what seemed like God being a, a monster tyrant, you know, and this and that. And, and I, I just remember thinking a lot about, like, you know, how, how am I going to reconcile these things if, if I believe that this God is just and he's real? And, you know, you know at the, at the same time, I, I think that aggression is evil. And it seems to me like he might be committing acts of aggression. Why would a, a reasonable, just God do that? You know, so I started looking at that. Um, I found some interesting re resources. There's one book by, it's called uh, God is Not a Moral Monster by um, Paul Copen or something something along those lines. Mm. That might not be the name of the author. That is the name of the book, though. God is Not a Moral Monster. And he looked at the, he looked at the instances in the Old Testament and, and brought up a lot of really interesting things about how 
he may not have actually been as aggressive as maybe he seemed or, you know, this or that. I, I, you know, a lot of that really kind of smoothed over a lot of my concerns with that for, for a while. Um, but it, it was really a separate thing that really got me thinking differently about, um, you know, the existence of God and, and, you know, the role that religion plays in my life. But at the same time, what kind of where it has crossroads with at least my parenting was, you know, my kids are getting older and now that they're not just, you know, in nursery where they're just playing with toys and they're going to have uh, Sunday school classes, am I going to be the kind of parent that's forcing them to go? I'm not, I'm not forcing them to go to school. Why would I force them to go to Sunday school? You know, mm-hmm. why would I force them or at least push them towards like getting baptized, you know, and this and that. And, uh, so that's really kind of where the, um, the crossroad was, I think was in what, what we're going to do with our kids. Are we going to make them go to church with us? And church, for the most part, other than some cases in primary, is really not an environment for children. Are, are, do you have a Mormon background at all? Are you familiar with? Yeah, I was raised LDS. And okay. Actually, for the first fourteen years of my life, you know. Okay, so you know all about sacrament meeting, mm-hmm. which is the first hour of church, or in some places it's the final hour, but it's where the, the you know the preaching, I guess we could say, yeah. happens. It's not an environment for kids, okay? You can't expect kids to sit down for an hour quietly. To me, that is complete violation of their natures, okay? Um, And the only way to do it successfully is to be super creative and have all sorts of games and toys and things to keep them focused on. Right. And a lot of people do that, and that's great. Right, right. Or, and I see this too, you pinch their ears, you poke them, you threaten them, you otherwise are coercing them to shut the hell up and pay attention. Right. To me, that's wrong. You know, that's that's wrong and evil. So, anyway, we, we didn't want to force our kids to go to church because we didn't want it to turn into conflict. And, you know, so we didn't. My son would stay home, but we'd take my daughter. She was a baby at the time, and, you know, she liked nursery and stuff, and so it wasn't a big deal. Anyway, um, so that's kind of where the there were crossroads with the voluntarism and the peaceful parenting as far as religion is concerned. So. Okay, yeah, that's great. Thanks for answering that. I mean, I think that's good to put out there, too. Just, um, you know, um, the next thing is I wanted to get onto your opinion since this has kind of been brought up already. Is there a difference between anarcho-capitalism and agorism? And, you know, if not, then you can pass by the question, but... Do, do you know the difference? I was, I've been kind of considering the differences between the two recently, and I think you were the right person to ask, so I just wanted to throw you that question, too. Yeah, I think... Um, okay, so if we look at the end game, if we look at a voluntarist society, an agorist society, an arno, excuse me, anarcho-capitalist society, in my opinion, those are all three the same thing. Okay, the end game... For all three of those, that type of society, they're all the same. Okay, you can you can call those, and even even in even a society that's you know maybe there's pockets of communes or syndicalism, as long as it happens voluntary 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 basis, to me that's that's anarcho-capitalism too, because that's what capitalism is. It's mm-hmm. a private ownership, whether that whether that private ownership is by individual or family. Or commune or syndicate doesn't matter if it's private owned and privately controlled in some way it's capitalism 
Um, that's why I put all of those variants of anarchism, I put those under the capitalist umbrella. Left anarchists hate that, you know, because they hate capitalism, they hate capitalism, the statism, blah, 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 blah. That's a whole thing. Anyway. Right, right. Okay, so the end, the end, the end, um, society for all of those to me are identical. Uh, now the question is, how do we get there? So, anarcho-capitalism, to me, is only concerned about politics and economics. Anarcho is politics, capitalism is economic system, okay? Voluntarism, in my opinion, expands that to look at the family, peaceful parenting, radical unschooling, okay? So, voluntarism is all of that. Agorism is, is strategy, okay? It's how do we achieve that free society? What do we do? And it's all about gray, expanding gray markets and black markets. Okay, so to me, agorism has always been strategy towards the agorist society, which is the voluntary society and the anarcho-capitalist society. That's kind of how I've always pictured it. So, yeah, to answer your question, that's that's really the difference. It's kind of the focus of them. The historical focus, you know, what the tradition has been, you know, over the past, past several decades or centuries or whatever it is. So you don't really think it should be one or the other, really. I mean, both should be used as vehicles to get where, what we say we want, right? A free society. Um, you're not really discounting the use of anarcho-capitalistic measures versus ag- agoristic measures um, versus someone, you know, trying something else as long as the end goal... Let me put it this way. As far as, if we look at each of them as a strategy, this is the way I see it. Anarcho-capitalism is is the strategy of using philosophy, expanding philosophical understanding, and economic understanding. Okay, so whatever form that takes, if it's, you know, some type of direct action to create that awareness, but you're expanding economic knowledge and philosophical knowledge. Okay, political philosophy. Well, regular, you know, all philosophy. Um, so that's agro-capitalism. Agorism is markets, whatever it is. You know, you're okay. creating, whether it's white, gray, or black. It doesn't matter. You're just creating and doing. And the actual Yeah, market. you're making a business. Right. You're selling product, um, you know, whatever it is. Voluntarism is peaceful parenting, radical schooling, plus those other cool. things. I think so there's, right there's right a way to kind of line it up as that's why three I different strategies. Because I think yeah. that you were the right person to ask <laughs> with your okay. background and your knowledge on that, you know, and I think other people are kind of wondering of all these things too. I think, you know, maybe we should, or, you know, you know, do a show on just these different variations of all these flavors to get it out there so, so people can find that mm-hmm. when they're looking at it because it's confusing when you're not familiar with all the, the terms, especially when you're adverse to the uh, term anarch anarchist from the get, right? Because yeah. it's been so polluted. But I, I agree with you that that term should be re- taken back, and uh, there's nothing wrong with it, because if you look at what it really means, it's just, really, it's just a, a political stance, because everyone in the political realm wants to define everything, so really it's just a political philosophy. Uh, it's not, doesn't mean chaos, as everyone's equated it in their head. And in the end, well, it, it, it the does etymology is just no masters, you know. That's it, all the word really means. Let so. me say this. It it does mean chaos if you're bent on dominating other people. It can be very chaotic to your goals of mass domination. <laughs> in other words, you know, to allow anarchist principles to spread. So, 
That's, yeah. that's one way we can say it's chaotic. Yes, it, it could create an environment of chaos, but in a, in a free, in a truly free society, the possibility for chaos would definitely be there. I mean, absolutely. No, no, I mean, it's chaotic for the bad guys. Oh, okay, yeah. But yeah, okay, the predators so can't. They're like, right. what do we do? Nobody's right. bending so down. So if everyone and, yeah. takes their money out of the Federal Reserve System, there would be a certain level of chaos there, and especially for the, the people at the top who depend on that type of a system to, to live, for them, that's a chaotic situation. Right, yeah, the, ro- the rug would pull out from underneath <laughs> them. It's for the very people chaotic. of Iceland who threw all of them in jail, they're good to go because they don't <laughs> have parasites yeah. hanging off of them anymore. So, so yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying, okay. So on on those lines, you've been kind of mentioning this a couple times, but you know, and you don't have to go into in depth, hour long answer. But what is jurisdiction? Um, jurisdiction is an area of authority, I guess. Well, I mean, if somebody says that they have jurisdiction over you, what they're saying is that they have a right. Uh, well, I guess it goes. It, there's actually two things. Um, they're saying that they have the authority to tell you what to do based on certain rules that they come up with or people in the past came up with. But also, you have an obligation or a duty to obey them. Right? So I, th- I think yeah. you to look at it both ways. Right. So earlier you mentioned challenging that, right? Challenging jurisdiction was something that you've kind of been thinking about yeah. lately. So 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 we need to know what that is and it's basically the claim that because of a certain region that these laws apply to you. And when you're challenging that what is what are you challenging there? Just the claim itself and Yeah, you're you're challenging their um yeah, you're challenging their claim that you owe them either um a duty, a, an obligation or money. Okay, uh, so um, it, you know, and, and people who call themselves government, you know, they claim jurisdiction, and it's based on the law that 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 they or other people that call, excuse me, that call themselves government wrote. Okay, so there are people, some percentage of society of a given society um, wrote laws and and for the most part all of these people who call themselves government the those institutions originated as an act of conquest okay over weaker parties in every case all across the world okay there is no government today that was ever established through the consent of the governed through everybody you know, who they would claim jurisdiction no, over. I didn't, I didn't okay, it didn't happen. I didn't sign anything. Well, no, I mean, yeah, even even look at, I mean, look at our own Constitution. First, right. for starters, I mean, when you look at the percentage of, in the given society of the 13 colonies, you know, however many people it was, the people that dis- made the decision for everybody else that they would no longer be subject to the crown. Okay, that was that was a minority of people. Okay, that was white landowning males. Okay, um, you know that was you know maybe fifteen, probably less than fifteen percent of the population. Okay, when you consider non-white people and women and children. 
Okay, so you have this super minority of people saying, we don't want to be subject to the crown. We're going to go to war. Okay, and now, you know, and, and then maybe people caught on after that and said, okay, well, you know, we're going to help you with that. Um, or not. Okay. A lot of people, a lot of loyalists, were violently removed from their lands. And their farms were destroyed and burned. I mean, there was there was a great amount of evil happening on both sides of that. Okay, a lot of property was, a lot of aggression was committed. Okay, I don't think any either side was um, in the right in that regard. But it happened. And then after it happened, they're like, you know, we need to create some rules and force people to pay us. <laughs> so again, land land owning white males, we're going to make a constitution. So again, super minority creates the you know, and in every state it happened, you know, they all created their state constitutions and so on and so forth. So in every case it's a minority and they're saying we're gonna do this. And for the most part, you know, a lot of other people are apathetic and they're just like, I'm just gonna go on with my life and whatever, I don't own land anyways. Um you know, they just didn't care. You know, a lot of people kept pushing west, you know, because they just wanted to get away from it. They just wanted to, you know, cut themselves out of a piece of um, the continent and, you know, build a life. You know, they just, whatever. Anyway, so, you know, all across the world, I think every government was created as an act of conquest. And their so-called jurisdiction is, is just, um, it's just a decree. You know, we just decree it in various different ways. Right. So, um, yeah, that's what jurisdiction. So, when somebody claims jurisdiction today, and usually it, it starts with, um, you know, you're you're driving along the freeway, okay, and you get pulled over, and the guy says you're going too fast. Speed limit. The speed limit is 55. You're going 65. So I'm going to write you a ticket now. You owe me money. Okay. So. To challenge that now, is that where you want to go? You want to talk about challenging? or Right, yeah, T touch on that, because that's kind of why I asked the question, you know, to, to kind of draw the line there, like, w w where is the claim at, and what what is it that we need to challenge when when there's a claim made that we owe somebody money that pulled us over on the side of the road? Yeah, go, go Right, so, so the police officer is making the claim that the laws that say you, you can't go above the posted speed limit, that that sign over there, says 55, you're going 65. There's a law written down in some book somewhere, you know, and it's copied and it's on the internet, whatever. says that anybody who goes faster, they owe us this such and such money. So now the cop is making the claim that that, that law applies to you. Okay, that law applies to you. Okay, so he writes the ticket out that you know, that's a claim of, of jurisdiction. He's claiming jurisdiction over you. So then to challenge that jurisdiction, it's it's very simple. You just say, Okay, uh, what evidence, what facts can you provide to me to support your claim that the law applies to me or that you have jurisdiction? Okay, and and the most that they can do is point to the law itself. Okay, that's all they can do is say the law says it applies to anybody traveling faster than the law allows. It applies to human beings. It applies to everybody within this territorial boundary. The law says the law says. Or the law created courts and the courts say. Well, that's not what you asked of them, right? You asked them <laughs> to prove how it applies yeah, I, it, to you. Yeah. 
what I'm asking is, well, I'm not asking how does it apply. I'm asking for evidence that it does apply. Okay, and all that they can, all the evidence, and I use air quotes, all that they can point to to try to answer that question is the law itself. So now that what they're saying is we have jurisdiction because the law says so, or the not, law applies because signature. the law says so. Not your signature, not your thumbprint, not your... Well, it, it, it really is. It's just what they're saying is the law applies because the law says so. So then you just challenge on that. What is, what is, isn't that a circular argument? How can the law apply because the law says so? Is the Bible, is the Bible true because the Bible says so? Well, that's the status belief system, right? When yeah. you write things down on paper and, and the majority agrees with it, then it's now reality. It's now, it's now a law. It magic, magically applies. Anyway, so the, okay, so really the purpose of challenging jurisdiction is because these people, they have, um, they have rules for themselves. Okay, and they have a certain PR that they have to maintain. Okay, they've got in their courts they the PR says um, innocent until proven guilty, and it says um, uh, proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, so the purpose of challenging jurisdiction is to to really uh, smash up against those ideas. Okay, because what you're doing is you're saying. Um, you know, if you get a ticket, the first thing you do is you submit a motion to dismiss, you submit a motion of, uh, or a discovery request and a Brady request, basically saying, judge, please dismiss that because there's no evidence of jurisdiction, there's no evidence of applicability of law, but then the discovery request is also telling the prosecutor, you need to give me this evidence that shows that your laws apply to me. Right. So as long as you stick to that and you're you're objecting, like if you're actually in a trial, yeah. you're in, you're on trial now, and every time a prosecutor tries to slither his way past the question of jurisdiction, as long as you're objecting and saying objection, prosecution is assuming jurisdiction, maybe that must mean he's presented evidence to the court. Can he please give me that evidence? You know, you're mm-hmm. you're constantly playing by their rules and challenging that jurisdiction. And it's been very effective for a lot of people all across yeah, the world. So. Right. So it's kind of like a nonviolent way to resist and and comply within their laws. But but if everyone started doing it, it, you know, how much of a problem would that be for them? Most people don't do it, right? So ninety nine point nine percent of people just go along with it. They just pay the fine, you know, yeah. fines or whatever. And you know, there's practical reasons to to just pay the fine. I mean, this takes time. It takes energy. Um, and so when I said earlier that I was kind of experimenting with this, um, over that trip to Vegas, we talked about, I got a speeding ticket on the way there in Beaver, Utah, which is four hours from here. Yeah. I heard about your podcast. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, all right, well, I'm going to submit the motion. I didn't submit the discovery request at the same time. I waited until after the motion was denied. I shouldn't have done that. I should have submitted it all. I even went as far as calling the prosecutor with Mark Stevens. He called him with me mm-hmm. and the most the prosecutor would say was, you're a human being. That's my proof. Right. Being a human being is just a condition of the law. That, that again, uh-huh. is saying the law applies because the law says so. Right. Anyway, and they set a court trial, um, but it was four hours away. I was really busy with my job. I couldn't get away, so I just took his plea in abeyance, did the traffic school, and paid the 120 bucks. Sure. So there's practical reasons so, so to just yeah, pay the you fine. Yeah, it's, it's cost-benefit, but... You know. 
what it did was it gave me experience. Right. Soon after that, I got a parking ticket downtown. I went into the hearing officer because they wouldn't dismiss it. I, I questioned jurisdiction and email or I questioned evidence for applicability, and the guy had no idea what I was talking about. He's just, they're just idiots. <laughs> uh, so I went in and I recorded the whole thing. Um, and I made a lot of missteps. I made way too many assertions. I should have just stuck with the questioning, the Socratic method, or what we call the Markratic method after Mark Stevens. Um, and I had an opportunity because I got a sec. I just paid that. It was 15 bucks, whatever. It wasn't worth my time. I got a second parking ticket, which I should not have gotten because the no parking sign was like three car lengths ahead of me, okay. pointing the other way. Yeah. So I think just, if I would have just argued the merits of the law, I think I could have gotten out of it. Yeah. But I still, I stuck with, you know, I was well, going to stick with jurisdiction. What is. I mean, man, some people just don't have the time, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a that. racket. And yeah. so you just end up paying because you know they're scumbags and you know that it's all a racket. But you're in this position where you have other things to do. And, 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 and some people just don't have that time to dedicate. I mean, I think that that's a, a lack of, you know, putting your attention where it should be in, in the situations that we are in, you know, achieving the things that we've been talking about in this podcast that acquire your time and attention. And it's going to, sorry, requires, you know, you to start dedicating some time to these things to, to, to get a little bit of freedom back in your own personal life. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take... Superman to start taking little steps like sending a letter on a ticket to say, hey, how does this, can, can I, can you show me evidence that this applies to me? Or however you word it, you know, I think, but like you said, there's a step-by-step guide pretty much that you could take five actions every time you're harassed by the state that you should take. At least the bare minimum, and if they provide the evidence and jerk you around for a year, fine, pay for it. But why not everyone fill up the courts with paperwork for people challenging jurisdiction, you know, maybe that will be one way to push back a little bit, right? Yeah. You know, and I was going to ask about more thoughts on peaceful noncompliance and, and what you think about that, but um, one question I have is, is taxation theft? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, this goes back to the jurisdiction question. I mean, if somebody claims that you owe them money, then the reasonable and irrational thing to do is to ask them for evidence of that claim. Okay, if a, if a somebody if a creditor comes to me and says you owe me money, they're going to provide with they're going to provide to me evidence, factual objective evidence that I owe them money. Okay, and so when it comes to taxation, the government can't do that. Okay, they can't. There is no objective factual basis that their tax laws apply to anybody. Um, so that they use threats of violence um, and jail time and ultimately death. Is, is it a trick question? I mean, is there something they could provide? You know, what you ask them, so so please provide the evidence, blah, blah, blah. Is, I mean, is there, there's nothing they could provide, right? Or, I mean, if they provided a document that you signed... Yeah, well, like like a creditor would. Like a contract, right? Right, like if my if I stop that contract, what what is that contract that they're using? Do they ever provide such contracts? No, I mean driver's license. So I mean, every month um, I get a a mortgage statement. Okay, my mortgage company says you owe us, you know, this money this month, and I could challenge that. I could say I don't really think I do. And they're going to pull out all the stuff I signed and the witness signatures. And they're going to say, these are the facts. 
on this day, you were witnessed signing this, agreeing to pay this, and you put up the actual physical home as collateral. Okay, so because we have a lien on the house, and this is a factual thing, we can take your house. Okay. okay? That's, that's, that is what it is. When it comes to the government saying you owe us money, they can't do that. Okay? They can't provide anything that connects you as a person to their, their laws, their rules. There is no connection. There's only the laws. There's the conditions the that the laws right. that are within the so law. They would, they would claim that the 16th Amendment and, and other laws that you can look up that say that you have to file your, you know, income tax and Congress has the, the right to levy tax, right? So, so they're making that claim. And then when you do challenge them, it, the agreement is is that you're a citizen of the federal government of the United Why? States of America. Right. No, I'm just, I'm just, okay. I'm, I'm playing the devil's advocate. And, you know, that they're claiming that you're a citizen of the, the federal um, corporation, the United States Inc., right? That, that you are now a, a fictional character under a corporate fiction. That's the law, right? But but what you're saying though is that law doesn't actually apply to to your physical body, right? Like there's a separation there where they're they're making a claim of on 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 your birth certificate. I mean because that's one piece of evidence they would provide in that with that question. Well, your birth certificate makes you a citizen of the federal government. So now you're you're a citizen of the United States of America based on this birth certificate. Why? Well, okay, so so your parents agreed to sign you over to the state, basically. I mean, the st- your parents, when they signed that paperwork when you were born, made that contract on your behalf as an infant to sign you over as property of the state. So is that the claim right there that we're challenging? That that claim? That no, the the claim is what is what does what does that paper have to do with me. Okay, all of that was based on what the law says. The law says if you're born within this territorial boundary and your parents were born within this territorial boundary in the past, we're going to label you as citizen. So I'm only a citizen because the law says so. Okay, so to say the law applies because I'm a citizen is saying the law applies because the law says so. It's a circular it, 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 it always comes back to a circular argument. So you, there's a lot of these um, different movements out there of people that are trying to challenge the tax laws and say the tax laws really don't require this or they really don't require that. Or, I mean, even the sovereign citizen movement, this and that. To me... And Mark Stevens is very clear on that. All of that is completely irrelevant. Okay, what the tax law says is a completely separate question that is after we establish jurisdiction. If the law doesn't apply, who gives a shit what it says? It's completely irrelevant. So we have to first, with factual evidence, establish that the law applies to me to you. And there is no factual basis that right. it does. So, But there's a threat of a gun and a cage. Exactly. I don't... Who was it? I don't right. know if it was it Lysander. The facts, right? That there's the, there's the coercion. Well, that's, that's, what's, that's what's funny. So in and some people, when I've, when I've gotten in this conversation with people, what they'll say is, 
it applies because if you don't follow it, you'll go to jail. That's just an appeal to force. You know, that's just an appeal to violence. Right. Yeah, appeal that's to not, that's yeah. not evidence that it applies. That is only evidence that certain people believe it applies enough right. that they're willing to use violence but to enforce it. I mean, I would say that that's most people's worldview, and it's it's the same with how you come to believe in government and have a status worldview, too. I mean, you have to have these huge gaps in logic and not... I mean, you when it, when it comes down to it, for me, I find that most people are moral relativists, so they can justify it all based on the fact that there is no objective morality in their mind. And so when you get people in that condition, you can essentially get them to do anything because they don't know what wrong is anymore. They think that you can write things down on paper and now it's a right. Because it was because the majority agreed to it and it's written down on paper. Suddenly it, it's a it's a correct thing now that just totally makes sense. So so yeah, I think that you're right. I mean, it's all just an illusion, really. It's all just claims and people believing those claims, but it doesn't actually line up. And we are just sovereign beings who, who just like you said, because of the fact that we were born in a certain region, you know, no one can can has a right anyway. That they're attempting to do this, but no one has a right and can't make it true in reality to just say that you endlessly owe us 30% of your paycheck forever because, you know, of all these things we wrote down, but there's real no actual contract that you've signed, you know. And yeah, there's there's no objective basis for, for my um, supposed obligation to pay. Right. It, I mean, other than an appeal to the law itself, which is circular, a lot of people will then start appealing to philosophy and uh, social contracts. And right. These obviously non-objective, mythical, or opinion-based Yeah, I always things. get to, well, what about this and what about that? Like, well, how are you going to pay for the roads? And it's funny because you really do get that argument. I mean, people joke about it, but then when you go and you actually have these conversations with people, you, you literally get back the argument about the roads and all these things. That don't actually address the real the real argument is is it the red herrings? Yeah, is, yeah. is it is it moral or is it right? Do you have a right to, you know, grant the grant the use of force to to the government to to, to impose their will and your will on everyone else? No, you don't have that right, and that's the argument. But people will always do the what ifs, endlessly forever. On and on and on about what if this, what if that, what if another country comes in and takes over, and what if? But they never address the fact that you know it's based on a flawed fundamental principle. You know the whole structure of, here's, of here's the taxation and government is flawed from from the beginning, right? When so somebody, all the what ifs don't matter. I was going to say, here's a good comeback when somebody says, "But who would build the roads?" What you should say is, "But who would build the bread lines?" Yeah, who would pick the cotton? No, who would build the bread lines? That's ironic because the bread lines were when government started controlling the food supply. That's when we started, or the gas lines, right? Like in the 70s, they started enacting price controls on gasoline because yeah, of the energy right. crisis. Yeah, uh, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, if we start to lose big government, you know, who's going to, yeah. Anyway. Right. Yeah, and so that's, you know, and I heard your recent piece on that on your editor's break as well, the taxation is theft and, you know obviously know the answer for myself anyway, but I, I wanted to do your take on that as it applies to jurisdiction and 
just, you know, more uh, like how it breaks down legally. I don't suggest that people go down the, the legal land rabbit hole, only enough to understand their rights clearly, but the solutions aren't found really there ultimately because it's it's kind of just a trap because it's just this dark hole that they've created that creates circular arguments that don't make sense and I just say you're free period that's it don't let anybody ever claim otherwise you know so and I don't know if if um, probably weren't going to get to this but let me say this one thing so I've had this conversation with um, with my father who's you know a big liberal democrat big Obama Clinton supporter um, and he he 100% um, conceded the fact that law is just an opinion backed by a gun okay that we have no political obligations or duties it's all just one group of people telling another group of people what to do he, he totally conceded that and says I agree with you I understand that's the case which to me is you know is great you know that he's that he's he's there but where the reason that he's he's a big Clinton Obama Democrat liberal progressive in air quotes they're not really progressive is because he thinks that um, you know rich people are you know rich as a result of theft and they need you know we need to forcefully redistribute wealth and so he views the state and government as a tool for justice in that regards mm-hmm. so he concedes everything as far as, you know, political authority is a myth, but he still likes the idea of um, this group of people who he considers are accountable through democratic means. Okay, he, you know, they're really not. But he thinks that they can be used and are used as a tool for just what he considers justice of redistributing from the haves to the have-nots. Several problems with that, obviously, especially when you know philosophy and economics. Anyways, that's yeah, you know. So I think he's halfway there, understanding that political authority is a complete myth. Admitted anyway, yeah, yeah, and and, and, you know, and and it's funny because he's also a big gun guy, and he's gotten more, he's gotten more radical in his Hmm. in his affection for guns. He's gotten like assault rifles, and he makes his own bullets now. You know, we go shooting. Like he is the worst Democrat on the planet (laughs) in that regard. Anyway, so that's funny. Yeah, it is funny. That's my that's my father. <laughs> He's like I, a walking I also contradiction. Talk a lot with my parents or anybody around me, you know, and and we all grow over the years, and it's interesting to see how people integrate my ideas over the years into their own way of seeing things. If, if they if they kind of hear what I'm saying, you know, because I have felt like I've gotten pretty good with my rhetoric over the years, mm-hmm. and I've tested out the the waters and got the the roads and all these different arguments back a hundred times or so, you know, so I know how to address them when they come up and I can easily overcome them, but yeah, you know, then but then you still see the lingering, well, what about the bad guys, what about the terrorists, what about, you know, there's all, all these hurdles that still need to be worked through, and it's understandable because you and I have this advantage of the internet and all these progressive thinking people writing in columns when you were growing up. Where our parents maybe didn't have as much availability, I don't give them the excuse that that, that this information didn't exist back then because it did. I mean, that these philosophies and, and a way to operate in the world that's nonviolent, that information has been with us for a long time. And also the problems that we're facing um, currently are is also, you know, not hidden. You know, so I don't give them that 
break and and I also kind of hold them accountable to the twenty trillion dollars in debt and not really questioning that at this point in time and just kind of passing it on to us passing and saying, well, I don't know what's going on. Uh, you know, oh, you you guys have the internet, you'll figure it out. Um, I, I don't give them the excuse, but kind of on that note, you know, moving forward. Uh, down the road, this interview will probably be picked up and listened to by most people kind of like, you know, a year from now or more or further down because that's just kind of how the nature of archiving things on the internet goes. What is your message to people who are like me, who found your work in stride? You know, I was coming through a lot of this stuff, kind of breaking through a lot of the mental barriers and using your work as well as, you know, an eclectic group of many other researchers, which I would always recommend people keep, you know, a wide variety of lots of different information about these topics, not just one source, but what's your message to those people kind of coming down the road, picking up our breadcrumbs, um, you know, do you um, think that they should kind of well, you know, what are, what are some of the mistakes you made? Kind of, kind of finish up the interview with your message to that generation, you know, behind us. That, that why you've spent the time and sweat and tears that you've spent into everything voluntary dot com, because that can be a living archive, right, of holding this type of information for those people. Yeah, sure. Um, well, my biggest regret. It would be ever spanking my son. I think the trauma that he um, suffered will affect him for a very long time for the rest of his life. He's got, you know, issues now that my other kids don't have because of that. Um, You know, as far as dealing with opposition, frustration, stress, um, you know, aggression, that sort of stuff. So just the fact that, you know, when I look at it, I, I think that what I, what we could call that is I, I broke a person in a, in a certain way. Okay. Through my actions. So that's my biggest regret. So, um, if, if you are somebody who experienced childhood trauma, I would think seriously about going through some major therapy before you have children. Because if you haven't taken the time to deal with that, once you have kids, and kids will push your buttons that you didn't even know you had, okay? And that will bring all of that back out, and you will become aggressive with them, and you will end up taking it out on them if you don't deal with it beforehand. Um, so that, that would be number one, would be to fix yourself before you bring in a new person into this world and end up breaking them too. Um, number two would be if you already do have kids, um, seriously reconsider how you're parenting them. Now, even if you're not convinced by any sort of moral or ethical argument against spanking and timeouts, there is very good practical reasons not to do it. And that was my other booklet that I wrote entirely called No Hitting, Why Spanking is Always Unnecessary. Um, and it goes through all the different excuses or reasons that people give to why it's necessary to spank. And I think I completely demolish each and every one of them. 
even the religious reasons. So, you know, even if you're not convinced that on moral grounds you shouldn't be spanking, I think on pragmatic grounds, you know, do your do yourself a favor because your stress level is going to come down. Do your kids a favor because you're going to stop inflicting trauma on them. Serious life consequence trauma. Um, and, and read that book and all of the references I make in that book. Read all of that stuff too. Um, that would be the second. The third would be just to know that you're free. You know, you are a free person. You have freedom. Okay, there are predators around. That's true. Okay, and that's just a part of life right now. And you will learn, um, you know, you'll get uh, street smarts to deal with those people. And whether that's just, you know, mitigating the risk, okay, you're just paying for the license or paying the speeding ticket. Or if it's learning and developing the courage to challenge their claims. Okay, and you can do those in baby steps. Okay, you don't have to go after the IRS, you know, immediately. You know, you can go after the speeding ticket first or the parking ticket. Okay, and even if in the end you pay it, you're still becoming more comfortable with that process. And so, you know, go to markstevens.net, listen to his podcast. It's all about it's all about that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that would be number three. Would be to just know that you're free, um, that you don't owe anybody anything, and nobody owes you anything. Okay, uh, um, you know, unless of course you borrowed money from somebody, then you better pay it back. <laughs> Other than that, <laughs> politically speaking, um, anyway. So, uh, so yeah, I think that would that would be it. Yeah, that's great. I I think that's a good sign off. I mean, I feel like I really got everything I wanted. Um, to address out there so if there's anything else you want to tag on to the end we definitely want to do so um, but I've been listening to Skylar's editor's break um, it's a little bit more personal um, of a podcast for him he's just kind of getting his thoughts out there on, on some updates or questions that came up but it's great stuff um, I know t- uh, Skylar got a Patreon account recently right? Yeah, I finally got a Patreon account set up for the website, so it's patreon.com forward slash EVC. Okay, so Patreon is an excellent way to support people. If you're not familiar with it, it's you can even just do like a dollar a month or something like that. Yeah, it's it's just a real simple way to um, you know to put money towards uh, people or projects that you want to get behind and support. And it's really just to set it and forget it, and you can pay with PayPal or credit card. You just go in and say, I'll, I'll contribute a dollar a month, and it's just an automatic billing thing. And, you know, if I can get, you know, several people contributing so much, then that can really help support the site. And, you know, I've put some money into the site and whatnot, and it, it would uh, really help. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, definitely go by and support Skyler's work there or purchase any of the publications or books or um, booklets that he's authored. He, he makes it really easy to go and support his work online. Um, but he also offers a lot of content for free on his website, and it's really valuable content that I am constantly finding myself browsing back to everythingvoluntary.com, um, especially when it's surrounding the peaceful parenting stuff. But um, there's also, my blog is reblogged to the website under the Freedom Hive. 
uh, it's a blog series there. I've got like five posts up there, and, and we were talking about that earlier. I, I plan to get more up in the future, but right now, guys, there'll be more interviews coming out like this in the future, but we really appreciate Skylar for coming on and spending time with us. We we would like to have you back and circle back after we've brought some more people into the sure. circuit. you bet. So, um, and we look forward to working with you in the future. I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, that's right. Excellent.